Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are here at the National Tribal Health Conference in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, for another series of great interviews. Beginning the show today, Tracy Prather, he's uh, with the Oklahoma Area Tribal Epicenter. He directs that project. It's great to have you with us, Tracy. Thank you very much. Uh, Appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. I know you're doing some great stuff because more than one person came up to me and they said, you got to interview Tracy and, and his team, and I know there's more than one of you here representing the Epicenter. Tell us a little bit about what you folks do. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. DeRose. We, you're very kind. We um, actually provide uh, education, resources, tools uh, to the tribes in the Oklahoma Texas and Kansas area with the uh, Southern Plains Tribal Health Board over the area for the tribes in Oklahoma, Texas, and Kansas. We uh, serve the tribes. We like to feel like uh, we are partners with the tribes and serve the tribes in in, in whatever capacities that we can, uh, helping them uh, with uh, any educational needs, with data, with resources, with tools, with connectivity, uh, helping connect them with grants, work uh, with them to provide grants, writing, trainings, uh, every, opportunity, every opportunity that we can uh, to, to work with the tribes to increase capacity, to increase infrastructure, see how we can help out. Because at the end of the day, the larger part of what we do in the communities uh, shows in the tribes how we serve in the tribes. And I think that goes to, to the elders, to the kids, to the youth. Um, we're just looking for a way to connect and see how we can help. So this conference, of course, is put on by the National Indian Health Board and people who tune into the show, people who are just connected in Indian country, they realize that there are a variety of these Indian health boards or tribal health boards throughout the country. You represent especially the Oklahoma Area Tribal Epicenter, but you're also part of the Southern Plains Tribal Health Board. So help us maybe understand what the epicenter does in relation to this broader mission I think you've been describing for the the Southern Plains group. Yes, uh, I will do that. Thank you. The health board here and the Southern Plains Tribal Health Board uh, is the umbrella organization that really is over the tribal epicenter. And the epicenter itself, uh, the directorship that I have, is working with a great group of staff uh, that uh, we've got epidemiologists, we've got uh, biostatisticians, we've got public health specialists. So we, we deal in public health and prevention. Uh, we're on the, uh, we're on the opposite side of clinical health. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at how we can, um, prevent, uh, on the front end that catastrophic happening in clinical health and research and trials and those type things. Uh, uh, some of the work that IHS, the Indian Health Services do, and some of the self-governance tribes, 
that have their own health facilities and capacities, we're trying to work in concert with them to look at the community side of prevention on a public format and strategic front where uh, we're helping align and facilitate uh, the clinical side with the public health side provision of data, mm-hmm. looking at trends, looking at environment, looking at in the communities what are some of the current priorities for tribes in Indian country so that we can, for instance, uh, Zika, Ebola, some of those type okay. things, so that we can look at how do we plug in and stay connected so that, uh, you know, you're looking at the prevention side of mosquitoes, uh, looking at the prevention side of even a lot of the SAMHSA grant work that we're doing. We have multiple grants across many federal funding organizations. So we're looking at mental health and on mental health, looking at how we get to kids before it becomes a problem when they're addicted to drugs and mm. how do we change behaviors. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's a very data-intensive work. You're actually collecting data on tribes. You're collaborating with tribes to look at different metrics to see how you're doing. And Absolutely. And that's, and that's a great way to put it is that, you know, how can we harness data? Uh, and it's the tribe's data. They do own it. How, how can we use data, harness data, and then align that data so that it's more specific to not just public data that's out there and not what you get through the state health departments, and which that's all great. But when we look at uh, dialed down and it's classified data that's surveys and information specific to the tribes, then they've got better information and better data of what's going on in their area, in their region, in their uh, certain county, down to the street address level. What are their needs and what are their priorities? And better data means better information for them uh, when we're targeting what grants are they looking for and, and mm-hmm. what programs are their priorities? You know, what's first in their interest? You know, so one target area may have specific targets that they want to work on that may not interest other areas. And, and you know, across Indian country, with all the tribes to Oklahoma, Texas, and Kansas, while they align on a lot of programs and projects together, they're not partnered on everything at all okay. times. Okay. So basically, I'm thinking, you know, at a tribal level. So, of course, a lot of the tribes in this part of the country, larger tribes, they have, you know, good infrastructure. They have good teams that can address some of these things. When there's grant opportunities, they can write those grants. But, of course, you deal with smaller tribes and uh, smaller tribal entities as well. And do you actually provide resources in helping people write grants, for example? Yes, we do. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. But while we do have, we have a varied mix of tribes, uh, some that are more fortunate, have more resources, some that are smaller tribes, maybe more regional, that are smaller towns, smaller areas, smaller Uh communities. Um, So we do help in providing resources for them. Those tribes that have capacity that uh, you're able to write for their own grants, that they've got a uh, full staff of opportunity People have personnel, have their own infrastructure. Uh, we'll help them in any way that they that, that they have needs. We also take their best practices, and we're helping provide those and share those with smaller tribes mm-hmm. that are uh, more rural, 
and don't have capacity. They may have one person that wears five hats that's doing five different jobs. Right. Uh, that's where we ask, can, how, how can we help you as we serve the tribes? How can we help you plug in? There's strength in numbers. So we bring our staff to them. We give grants, rate, grants writings, trainings, uh, opportunities, and it's not just a person. It can be four or five. It can be ten. Whatever they need, how can we help plug them in to write for their grants? And if they don't have capacity uh, at those grant writings, trainings, We'll ask them to bring a grant in, and we'll write it with them. We'll mm. write it for them. Very Our staff nice. then becomes their staff, and if they have needs that, uh, you know, they need data-driven, mm-hmm. they need uh, analytics, they need uh, biostatisticians, they need surveys, they need help with constructing uh, what their surveys are going to look like. Our staff comes out to plug in to provide those resources to do that, and it helps teach them capacity, but at the same time, you know, we're uh, able to do that so that they get the data and the information and resources and detail that they need. Now, there are these tribal epicenters throughout the country. Yes. And for those who are listening today who may be in Oklahoma, they may be living in Kansas, they may be in Texas, right. that is your region that yes, you're sir. covering. And if they're saying, wow, I didn't realize that these opportunities were available they actually can go to your website? Is that the best way to interface with you? Absolutely, yes, that's correct. And please visit our website. Uh, it's uh, S-P-T-H-V, Southern Plains Tribal Health Board. Uh, you can you can Google that or S-P-T-H-B.org. Uh, We'd love for you to visit our website. We You can inquire there as to, to you can see what we do, who we are, who we serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a wealth uh, of information. We've got a wealth of opportunities. We have a lot of the outreach that we're doing is provided in there, opportunities for tribes, opportunities to partnership mm. with tribes, uh, not only tribe to tribe, but tribe uh, with us and in connecting with all our partner organizations whether it be state health department, county health mm-hmm. department, all the resources that we can bring in to plug in to fill the gaps that the tribes may need, uh, you can find those resources there. That's tremendous. Now, Tracy, I've heard a number of things uh, here at this conference about a lot of things happening in Indian country, of course, and you'd expect that at the National Tribal Health Conference. But I heard some amazing data about what you folks are doing at the Oklahoma Area Tribal Epicenter just as far as uh, some of the grant funds that are coming through your efforts uh, into this region. I don't know if that's fair to say. Can you tell us anything about that? Yes, sir. We've had the privilege and the opportunity to, to be able to, to work with and partnership with, uh, with the tribes to write for grants, uh, federal grants, uh, foundational grants across the board. And for our past Four years now, as we got our grant year is just ending. Uh, so, so a federal grant year is just ending at the end of September. So we're about to roll into our fiscal year grant year of 19 for 2019, starting October 1st. But the three previous years, I'm sorry, four previous years now, to uh, to this new grant year that we're coming into, we've actually doubled our federal grant awards because we've really made a concerted effort to get those resources put together and out there for the tribes to pass these uh, opportunities through to the tribe. Three years ago, from our grant awards from that year, we doubled them. The uh, next year, we doubled them this last year. And then we, so three years standing, we've doubled the award amount 
of federal grant funding that we've received to be able to pass through to give to the tribes. And we're on course to, we're not going to quite double it for our fiscal year 19, but we still have awards coming in and, and it will increase. Now, it's always impressive to hear about those incremental increases, but some people, if they don't know what kind of numbers we're talking about, they're saying, well, yeah, I could double what I got from the federal government last year because I got a $20 tax return (laughs) check. Uh, What kind of figures are we talking about? I do want to say it's really about the tribes. It's not really about anything that we're doing. So it's not, I'm not trying to beat the chest of the uh, tribal epicenter, but uh, we've got multi-million dollar awards that we're able to pass through to the tribes. So, and we've been able to double up on those and double up on those. So we're into the tens of millions of award dollars that we're able to pass through to the tribes. Wow. I mean, this is exciting. So basically, not only are you a resource center, not only are you analyzing data, not only are you helping people who have needs, whether it's at a tribal level or a regional level, but really we see a huge amount of resources coming into this section of Indian country as a result of people partnering with you, that teamwork, that collaboration that you've been talking with. Yeah, that would be correct. And I appreciate that because, you know, that really and truly at the end of our day, um, I mean, that's what it's all about is how do we serve the community? How do we serve the tribes and how, how do we make better uh, to be able to network and fill the gaps? And it is all about uh, trying to bring the resources and trying to provide uh, the opportunity. And it's important for us. And I do want to say on the Tribal Epicenter side, um, during the time that I've been there and very fortunate to work with a great staff that does a fantastic job in everything we do, I do want to say that we are not uh, a government organization. Mm. And we are not an organization uh, that will will come in and drop off a manual and give you a check and say good luck with that. We want to walk hand in hand with you to help provide uh, resources and tools and information and staffing. Uh, it's important for us to to be partners with the tribes as we start to work through that process. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, opportunities to see uh, change and improvement, uh, kind of keep it out of the ditch, keep it in the middle of the road, and and be able to help the tribes thrive. Tremendous. Well, Tracy, we got to step away, but before we do, uh, one more time, you've been listening to uh, Tracy Prather. He's the director of the Oklahoma Area Tribal Epicenter. You can get more information at the Southern Plains Tribal Health Board. That's sphb.org. And, uh, Tracy, one last thing before we go. I know you've got a big conference coming up in 2019. Uh, just give us a quick plug for that. I will do that. Thank you, uh, Dr. Rose. We have uh, our annual Tribal Public Health Conference. It's coming up April 9th through 11th, 2019. It's actually going to be in River Spirit Casino and Resort in the Tulsa area. We'd love to have you come and join us. It's free. Uh, come and partner with us. Tremendous. Tracy, thank you so much. We're going to step away. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living right after this. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. 
And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We have actually stepped away from the venue of the National Tribal Health Conference in order to have our next guest join us. We're actually having a conversation by way of phone with Catherine Halbritter. Catherine, it's great to have you with us. Thanks. It's a pleasure to uh, talk with you guys. Well, I know you would have loved to have been at the National Tribal Health Conference. We had a great time there. And I know you ultimately have been at other professional Native conferences, but for today's show, it's a phone connection, and I think you've got a tremendous story. First of all, tell us a little bit about your roots. All right, yeah. So I'm actually from upstate New York, and I'm part of the Oneida Indian Nation of New York. And growing up, I've had the privilege of attending certain events and uh, being involved in my culture here. And honestly, like that's, this is the culture I know most of. Um, I'm not full Native American, but it's been awesome to be able to um, grow up with my Native cousins and family. And it's been an honor, especially most recently, where I um, started working as a medical scribe at our Oneida Indian Nation Health Services. So I've been able to be more in touch with my roots all the more talking and interacting with our patients and with with a lot of my relatives, frankly, because a lot of us are related. Um, so that's been a blessing. And it's been great uh, seeing the different activities and events that go on in our nation because they like to try to keep our members active and involved in our traditional roots. 
What I love about your story, Catherine, is many times we have people who have completed all their training, they're in Indian country doing what they want to do for the rest of their life, perhaps, but you are doing something that's giving you a lot of meaning and purpose. You're giving back to your tribe. As you mentioned, you're working as a medical scribe. We'll talk about that in a moment, a little bit more detail for those who aren't familiar with it. But you have aspirations beyond being a medical scribe. Mm -hmm. What is your long-term goal? If you could write the script for the rest of your life, what would you like to be doing? So it's been a dream of mine to pursue a career in medicine. And it's especially become all the more real to me um, working as a medical scribe. I would love to give back to my Native community as a physician working right here in um, Oneida, New York, at the health services. Um, I've had the privilege of working with Dr. Newton, uh, my the, the person I guide for mostly, who's the clinical director there. Mm-hmm. And he, he says, like, Catherine, you're the future of the health services, and you got to come back. And it's not like I'm, I'm being pressured or anything. I've just grown and come to really love working among our people, and I just have that inner peace. Um, and I believe, you know, God has shown me, like, this is where I need to be, this is where I'm meant to be, and um, so that's what I would love to do, and just having the passion for for helping people, I just know and believe I'm called to be a physician, and giving back to my community, it couldn't be better than that. Now, a lot of times we hear the success stories, we hear people who grew up in Indian country, maybe Despite the challenges, they had a fairly smooth pathway. Doors opened up for them to get their undergraduate training and then go on to medical school, maybe even uh, do you know some specialty training or some additional graduate work. You're at a point in your career where you do have a bachelor's degree already, correct? Correct. So what did you do your uh, undergraduate studies in? I did my undergraduate studies actually in animal science. Okay. So animal science would be something that you could go into veterinary medicine or human medicine with. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, correct. What's really nice about the curriculum nowadays is that you can have pretty much any major you would like as long as you meet the prerequisites for pre-med or pre-vet. And um, so that's, that's really all you have to meet. So, like, general chemistry, organic chemistry, biochemistry, and biology, and physics. As long as you have those, you can have pretty much any major you like. So was it a challenge for you to get into an undergraduate school that you were interested in? Was that tough coming from a uh, Native background? I don't know how strong your educational roots were? Do they have a pretty good primary and secondary school system there on the Oneida Nation, or were you raised off the nation? So I was raised off the nation. I actually attended the school in a little west of Oneida, New York, um, called Manly's Pebble Hill for the first um, five grades. Mm-hmm. And then I went to a Seventh-day Adventist uh, junior academy called Parkview Junior Academy, where I did the rest of my grade school. After that, I went to Union Springs Academy, which is in Union Springs, New York. Mm-hmm. And off I went to Anderson on the nation territory. But they strongly support and strongly emphasize on 
the, the importance of getting an education and how that will promote, you know, success and, and help you become successful in life. So they very much support that. I know one of the challenges that we've heard from other guests who've been on the show is if they had their initial education close to home, it's a real challenge sometimes going to a a secular campus, a non-native school. Sometimes you're not around that family support network. You don't have people that are supportive. You may be facing issues with discrimination. Being native, did you face some of those challenges when you did your undergraduate work there at Andrews? You know, I didn't. I think we were very privileged because Andrews University is one of the most diverse campuses in the U.S. Yeah, we didn't have really, like, any Native Americans there. <laughs> but just having that diverse component to the campus really helped with um, accepting different um, different ethnicities or different backgrounds. And so, like, I've made friends who live in Norway, who are from Africa, who are, who are from all over. So it just makes it very neat because we all come from different backgrounds. So it wasn't... It was it was really nice not to have that as as a challenge. They're more accepting of the diversity that was on that's on campus. Yeah, some of our listeners may or may not be interested to know that I actually did some of my undergraduate work at Andrews University. Which, if you're trying to put it on the the map, it's in the southwestern corner of Michigan, not all that far from South Bend, Indiana, mm-hmm. and a couple hours, hour and a half or so of Chicago, just around the bottom of Lake Michigan there. It's a school, like you said, very diverse campus. You got your undergraduate training there, Mm -hmm. and now you find yourself in this role of a scribe. Now, before we get to talking about scribing, probably, you know, there's different challenge points for people, regardless of whether they're Native or not, you know, in the educational world. The first one is especially if you come from difficult circumstances, and I'm not, um, I think, sure, People could say, well, I came from a tough environment in, in Indian country, but you know, some of the people that I've worked over the years, you know, some inner city environments, really difficult settings where people don't generally graduate from high school. And again, mm. that can be anywhere. It can be any race. It could be any any gender, whatever, any any age range. I mean, kids can be coming in and out of the school system. But But the point is, there's the first challenge is just completing that high school training. Then it's going away to college and actually sticking with it. So, I mean, you've made two big steps. A lot of the folks that I've dealt with have said one of the biggest challenges they had was when they went away to college for the first time and, you know, people were not supportive. There was discrimination. They didn't have the kind of experience you had. Mm. So the next challenge, though, is you've completed your undergraduate. It's actually getting into medical school. Mm-hmm. How has that process been? Has it been, am I understanding the timeline right? Maybe you've been out of college for a year and a half or so? Yeah. Yeah, about a year and a half. Okay. And I know some people, it seems like they graduate, they go right to medical school. How has that process been for you? You know, it's been a it's been a very growing experience for me, and it's, it's humbled me in a lot of ways because, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to get right into the undergrad or going to college and just doing well in high school and not having problems with that. But going through this process of uh, trying to get into medical school hasn't been an easy one for me. Mm-hmm. 
And it's um, it's definitely made me appreciate the process as well. And looking back, I see how how God has had a hand in it because it's it's given me more of an understanding for those who have struggled with getting to school and who have struggled with getting getting to where they want to go. And now I, I believe I can relate on a deeper level or I can understand and, and be empathetic with those who, who are still trying to get where they need to go. And I've also realized that uh, everyone has their own journey mm-hmm. um, in, in attaining their goal. But as long as they keep their eyes on the prize, it's, it's possible. And if, if you believe that's what you need to be doing and you have that drive to get there, it'll happen in the right time. I so appreciate your spirit. And we want to talk more about your journey because there's a lot of people that can relate to this very real challenge of having aspirations, the doors don't seem to open at first, and what do you do? And the next chapter that we're going to talk about is what you're doing right now. We've kind of alluded to it, but we'll come back to that in just a moment because we've got life lessons from Catherine Halbrader that are encouraging, I think, to every one of us, wherever you're at. I'm Dr. David DeRose. The show is American Indian Living. We've got a lot more coming up. We'll be back with more right after this. Don't go away. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. 
Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're talking about a life story. It's a real story that every one of us faces. What happens when the doors don't open up the way you want them to? Catherine Halbritter is sharing with us some of her story from Oneida Nation, tribal member there with her family based in upstate New York, to trying to get into medical school. Um, As you were sharing your story, Catherine, I remember talking with a family member, a younger family member who was was in college at the time, and she said, you know, most of my friends just said, forget it, we're not going to even try to go into medicine because there's so many qualified people that seem to want to get in and, and they can't. A lot of people just get discouraged. But I don't hear any discouragement in your voice. I've met you before. You know, we've we've talked a number of times. We, we've seen each other in some different venues. Mm-hmm. And I just have always sensed that you were optimistic. You felt that the creator was going to open things up for you. But before we, we get to talking about where things are at right now, we want to talk about your plans right after you finished college. Now, I'll tell you for myself, when I finished college, I was trying to get into medical school, and I had some plans. I said, well, if I'm, if I'm going to either get into medical school and then I'm going to do that, or if I don't get in, I was looking at other things that I was going to do. But I was definitely trying to get in uh, right after college, and those doors did open for me in that way. In your case, though, you planned to take a year off. Some people call it a gap year. Tell us a little bit about that kind of thinking and, and why that was attractive to you. Yeah, sounds good. So actually, initially, I wasn't planning to do that um, when I was in my senior year. Uh-huh. But when I when I spoke to my senior advisor, he kind of said like it, it it doesn't look probable for you to get into medical school like right after because because I was it's another story. But I was animal science pre vet, and because of that, like pre vet, you don't have to take the MCAT; you can just take the GRE. So I planned my courses a little differently than I should have for um, pre-med. So I didn't get in all the courses that I needed to in order to take the MCAT when I I needed to take the MCAT to get into medical school right after, if that makes any sense. Okay, so let's see if we can kind of break this down. So the MCAT is, does it stand for Medical College Application Test or Aptitude Test? I mean, I took it years ago, but I don't even remember what the initials stand for. Do you remember? Yeah, I think it's Medical College Admissions Test. Okay, Medical College Admissions Test. Yep. So everybody took that, even in my generation, and your score on that had a lot to do with how interested schools were in you. And so what I hear you saying is maybe because you didn't have those uh, prerequisites as well, maybe that you didn't do quite as well on the MCAT as you had hoped? Um, I don't know if that really had something to do with it. I didn't take the MCAT um, until I took all of my courses, all of the courses that I needed to take. I see. So that's the reason why it kind of pushed it back to the summer after I should have taken the MCAT. Okay, so so do I hear you saying if you were going to go into medical school right after your senior year, you would have taken the test earlier? Correct. Okay, and because you took it late, you couldn't apply and have a score? that they could look at. Correct. Yeah, because that's the MCAT is required in order to get into medical school. So 
when I heard that news from my med advisor, I was kind of crushed because I was hoping to go straight in because I'm the type of person who likes to keep things going and, and striving and like I wanted to just go straight into medical school. But, you know, God had other plans. After getting that, hearing that news, I I decided, all right, well, I need to make the most out of this gap year and gain as much medical experience as I can, study, study for the MCAT to take so I can get in the next time around. That's how I ended up getting the position I did at the health services. I shadowed Dr. Newton, the, the main position that I strive for now, previously, um, and the supervisor there said, like, we'll have an opening for you, like, if you have time um, for for this position of being a medical scribe. So it happened to work out perfectly that because I, I was taking that gap year, I was able to work as a medical scribe and start start working for our 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 native people or for our United Indian Nation Health Services. And so that's kind of that's kind of how it happened where I heard from the pre med advisor that I could I couldn't do or go straight into medical school. And so I I was discouraged at first but then I I tried I changed my mindset to thinking, okay, what can I do to make the most out of this gap year? And gain as much experience as I can because I know medical schools like to see that you're serious about the the path that you're on and you're serious about being a physician and gaining that experience is really important to show on your application and it shows that you're serious about pursuing that career. This is great. What I enjoy so much about your story, there's a number of things. One of them is a lot of times in life, it doesn't matter what it is, maybe something does come easy, like you shared. Things seem to come very easy with your you know, elementary school and high school and into college, but there's roadblocks that we all face you know, sometime. Right. And those roadblocks, we can either throw up our hands, we can give up, we can get discouraged. Uh, it could be a relationship that's gone sour. It could be you know, a career path. It could be an educational challenge. And I so appreciate what you're sharing with all our listeners. You're saying, you know, don't give up. Don't look at something not playing out the way you wanted as a failure or as something we've got to be discouraged about, but say, what can I do positive in this situation? Yeah. So you've been, you, you keep telling us about being a scribe. Now, I know what that is because I work in a you know, health clinic myself. But what is a scribe and why? I mean, they didn't exist when I was a, a boy, when I was even in residency. that We didn't have scribes. What, what is all this about? Help us understand it. Okay, sounds good. Essentially, it makes the physician's job easier <laughs> to make, make it simply said. But basically, what a medical scribe does is because, you know, we're so technological nowadays, we have an electronic medical record system where you can enter in the charts of the charts of the patients. It's not all handwritten anymore. Mm-hmm. So what I do essentially is take the doctor's notes. So you go through and I go into the appointment with the, the physician and I hear what the patient is complaining about. So I type it out or I write it or click off the buttons in the template, say it's a cold or something, and they're complaining of having a runny nose. You click off those symptoms that they're having, and um, then you go through and do the review of systems, 
picking off the different symptoms they have. And then the physical exam is what the doctor does. That's the objective part of it. And then after that, um, we do the assessment plan. Basically, okay, what are you going to do to help this patient? What are, what are you diagnosing the patient with? And what's the plan of action for the treatment? So, yeah, essentially a scribe takes the notes of the physician and learns a lot of wonderful terminology that I think will be very helpful for when I go into medical school. I'll tell you, when I showed up in medical school, I was not as well prepared as a lot of the other students because I really didn't have any clinical medical experience. I mean, I had classmates who were nurses and classmates who were physical therapists and folks who'd been in that medical environment. From day one, I'm hearing all kinds of terminology that I'd never heard before. So it was a pretty steep learning curve that first year of medical school. And you've really kind of taken a, a quantum leap because you've gotten exposure, right? In the clinic, you're seeing patients, you're seeing how doctors process things, and you're learning the terminology as well, aren't you? Correct. Learning, I'm learning new stuff every day. Well, and the other exciting thing to me is you're actually already giving back. I mean, if you'd been in medical school and then residency, you have been away from your people for, you know, seven years or more probably before you went back to that clinic. Right. But here you are sharing your enthusiasm, your encouragement, coming close to your, well, family members and other tribal members. Mm -hmm. So has that been a rewarding part of the, the work for you? Oh, absolutely. That's probably one of the biggest takeaways that I can gain from this. Like, building those connections and interactions with the patients is just such a wonderful thing. And that's, that's probably a huge part of what has convicted me so much to want to come back and serve my people. It's having that connection with them and working among my own people. It just makes it all the more special. And I think being Native American myself, I can connect on a deeper level because we're, we're all from the same kind of situation. Um, and I believe, like, having that good rapport now, as you mentioned, um, working among them builds that trust and that relationship. Um, and so just having that having that now is just such a wonderful thing. And I'm super excited to see what the future holds and um, hopefully in coming back to serve them as a physician someday. Now, we actually first met by phone, and the phone conversation, this was, I mean, it might have been, what, six months ago, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think almost, you know what? I almost think it was like, almost a year ago. Was it that long ago? Okay, well, I, I mean, I remember the situation. You'd been out of school for a while. You'd been working as a scribe. Yep. And then you tried to get into medical school a year after you finished school, and the doors still hadn't opened. Yep. And I don't know how, if, if you were all that discouraged, but I know one of your friends in Indian country was, and uh, this is someone who's been a leader and a real positive force in Indian country, and, and he, I know, was, was disappointed that the doors didn't open up for you. Yeah. He shared your story with me and asked if I would talk with you. I don't know if that was particularly encouraging or not, but I was glad to meet you, and I just appreciated you. Mm. I still imagine that was pretty tough, though, when you felt like you'd taken that year off like you needed and 
we're, we're hoping things would would open up for you after a year, and they didn't. Was that was that pretty pretty hard? Oh yeah, it was very devastating. It's uh, I will say though, it did help to have. I, I thank the Lord to to have had support from you and from all my other family and friends like that. That is just such a relief to have and such a good thing to have when you're going through the devastating times. But yes, it was very devastating when I found out because, you know, I, I was thinking things were going to work out, that I was going to be going to a school that I wanted to attend, and this didn't turn out that way. But, you know, I I thank God for these adversities and times because you can either grow from it or, or, or not grow from it and give up. But I hope it's encouraging to, to whoever's listening that it's, when you go through times like these, if you believe in your heart that you're supposed to be pursuing a degree or you're supposed to be doing a certain thing, don't give up on that dream. We all have different journeys. We all have different times of when we get where we have to go. And sometimes we may never know why things have gone the way they went, mm. but we can trust that it'll make us better people in the long run after going through those situations and making sure you have a support system is very important. Thank you for those insights, Catherine. I know this your story's not over yet and we've got some encouraging parts to the story coming up in our next segment. Don't go away. Our final segment of American Indian Living is just a couple of minutes away. Got a couple of announcements and then we will be right back. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. 
Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We've been talking in our last several segments with Catherine Halbritter. Catherine is an aspiring physician wanting to go back and make a difference among her tribe there in Oneida, New York. She's already doing it, not as a physician, but as a medical scribe. That's what we've been hearing. And we just talked with Catherine about another sad chapter where the doors didn't open up for her to get into medical school after a year of being out of school. You shared with us, Catherine, how that was discouraging, but you didn't throw in the towel. You didn't say, forget all this medical stuff. You went back to the very same clinic, didn't you? Correct, I did. And kept doing the thing that you were doing. Yeah. Now, there might be other people listening who have family members, friends, maybe they themselves have a dream to go to medical school. Did you learn anything the the second time around? The first time around, it was problems with when you took the medical college admission test. The next time is when we're talking about about six months ago or a year ago, things didn't open up. What did you learn from that experience? Did you learn anything about the whole application process? Oh, yes. I decided to look and see and ask advice from people, like, what are things that I could improve on? Mm-hmm. And luckily, one of the schools gave me back some feedback of different things I could work on and improve on. And so one takeaway was revamping my personal statement. Mm. Because what you want to do as a medical student, although you are as, a, as an applicant, is you want to stand out. You want to make sure you stand out from all the rest. Mm-hmm. Because most most applicants, you know, they go through and they have their science majors, they gain experience and whatnot. But what is it about you in particular that makes you shine like a star among all the rest? Uh-huh. And so that was something that I wanted to make sure I, I emphasized on in my personal statement. So revamping my personal statement was definitely one thing that I did. Another thing that I decided to do this time around is after talking to my uh, physician mentors, Dr. Newton being one of them, um, is to apply to more schools. Because this first time around, I only applied to um, four, four schools. Mm-hmm. This time around, I applied to 17 because... That's actually a good average. Some people apply from 15 to 20, 15 to 30. Uh-huh. So it's, it's pretty common to apply to that many schools because it brought in the pool of the schools that will accept you. Um, so that was another thing I did. And getting good letters of recommendation is also very important because the admissions committee looks at that as well. So it sounds like you took a very kind of disciplined approach. You looked at ways you could improve. You send off applications this time around to 17 schools. And for those who aren't familiar with the process, nobody usually just accepts you outright. They first offer you an interview. That's kind of the first bar that you've got to uh, clear. Have you gotten any interviews out of those 17 schools that you've applied to? Yes, actually. Um, I have one that I actually did already. Uh And I have one that is coming up this Friday. 
I'm still waiting to hear back from a few other schools. Okay, so this is sounding encouraging, but be, be, before we talk any more about where you're at in the process, I think we've got to step back just a little bit because you're talking about interviews, and often these are on-site interviews, right? You've got to travel to the school? Correct. So someone who's listening, they're just like you. They're aspiring to be a physician. Maybe they're aspiring to getting into nursing school, and they mm. live on a nation that's far away from maybe a, a school that they want to go to. They're having to travel just for an interview. I mean, we're talking about an expensive process, right? Taking the MCAT and uh, applying to schools. C- can you help us understand this? I mean, how much does someone almost have to have in order to even do the application process and go to interviews? Yeah, it's definitely quite the costly process. It can mount up to thousands of dollars depending on how many schools you apply to. With each step, there comes a certain expense. Wow. Now, you had told me off-air, for Native people or other people that have financial hardship, there's some ways that you can get help with the whole application process. Is that correct? Correct. How do they do that? Through the AAFC, which is the American Association of Medical Colleges. I think that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what you apply through for the primary application, and that's what you take the MCAT through, and that's just kind of what facilitates the next step. So through them, you you can apply to this program called the FAP, Financial Assistance Program, Uh where they can waive certain fees, like for your MCAT. Um, You can apply to up to, I think, six schools where they waive the cost, um, through the primary application. And then most schools that you apply to will waive their secondary application fees if you've um, qualified for that program. And so what is the, what is the MCAT cost to take it? Do you know? So I do not know exactly because I was fortunate enough to qualify for that program. Oh, wonderful. But I think if I'm correct, I might be wrong, don't quote me on this, but I think for the cost of the MCAT, if you're just paying the regular fee, it's I think around $350. Okay. With going through the SAT, I think for me it was 150 Uh-huh. So applying to a school, there's a general application process for medical school, right? Everyone goes through a kind of a standardized application, but then you do a secondary application for the schools that you want. They, they request additional material, right? Correct. And what kind of expenses are we talking about for that process? So it varies from school to school. It can range from $35 to $150 wow. um, or more. At least that's what I experienced. It might be more or less, depending on what schools you applied to. So when you applied to 17 schools, you were thankful that you got some assistance because that alone could have been a couple thousand dollars, right? Oh, correct. There's an encouraging conclusion to our show today. You don't want to miss, but before we do... If someone wants to get a hold of you, maybe learn some of the ropes about applying to medical school, you told me off air you've got an email address that you're happy to share. What is that? So the email address is H-O-R-S-E-L-U-V-R-K at gmail.com. K. Okay, so horse, just spelled like the animal, lover, and you spelled it L-U-V-R? Yep. Okay, and K for Catherine. 
Correct. Okay, so horselover, L-U-V-R-K, at gmail.com. And if you want to interact with Catherine and maybe get some ideas on help as far as uh, attending medical school, just kind of navigating the process, she'll be of help to you. As we wind things up, you've gotten some interviews. You you had one interview. You uh, are got another one coming up. Have you heard anything from the school that, that interviewed you? I would say about a week and a half after I had this interview, I was at work, and it was probably midday. And I looked and I saw that I received this email, and it said, you have had a change in your application status or the status of your application. And it said that um, to check that and that you would be receiving something in the mail later. So I was like, huh, interesting. And so I looked down below to see the letter that they attached to this email, and I read it, and it said, Catherine Halberter, so I knew it was for me. <laughs> it said, Catherine Halberter, um, you have been accepted into the class of 2023. And I just could not believe my eyes. I'm like, is this, is this for real? Is this actually happening? And so I just, I couldn't contain myself. I did not necessarily, like, scream. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I certainly felt like it. I, I just, I had to go tell someone. I had to go tell someone who everyone was around because it was lunchtime. So there weren't a lot of people around. But I was like, I have to go tell someone. So I ran into my other mentor and someone who also works at the health services, uh, Dr. Samad. I saw him and I'm like, guess what? I got accepted into this into this medical school. And he's like, oh my goodness, he was so happy for me. He ran up and gave me a hug. Uh-huh. And he's like, I had no doubt that you would. I had no doubt. He, he's always been so encouraging to me and has always said like that I would be such a good position. He had no doubt about that in his mind. He's like, but I didn't want to tell you that before you got the acceptance. So mm-hmm. uh, it was great hearing that from him. And then I had to go tell Dr. Newton, who I told soon after. And then I called all these other people. So it was just a, a great day of celebration, for sure. I love your story so much. And folks that hear about the interview, they said, well, Dr. DeRose got this young lady on the show knowing that she had just been accepted to medical school. But actually, when we plan to do this show... You hadn't gotten the word yet, had you? Correct. And I just enjoyed your story. I've appreciated your your spirit. And it's so exciting to see those doors open up. And, you know, the creator was putting this burden on your heart to go into medical school. And now those doors are open. Tremendous words, Catherine. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. We do have to go. But hopefully today's edition of American Indian Living has helped you to catch a new perspective And mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, enjoy the very best of health. For all of us, I'm Dr. David DeRose. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.